Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in Matthew 10. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Matthew chapter 10. You'll be able to read along with what we're talking about here. We are in a series where we're talking about evangelism, but I want you to understand that, that this is supposed to be evangelism with joy. And I want to try and take apart some of our wrong thinking about this. I don't know if you're like me. Uh, I'm a guy that wants to make everything fun. Rachel, my wife, is somebody who's very disciplined, and she's okay with just doing something because it's important. I also need it to be, ha-ha, you know, fun in some way. I can't just blow the leaves. I've also got to listen to a podcast. I can't just watch TV. You've also got to have your phone there because sometimes there's commercials, and how could you stop, you know, just to let your mind wander? You've got to at least have something else fun to do. I saw a thing yesterday called Fubo, Fubu, Fubo, something like that. It's a, a streaming service. But it allows you to like split your television into four streams. So you can watch four different games simultaneously, like a sports better. How amazing would that be? You would never have to think about anything. You could just allow it to go. And at any point, if any game is even slow, not even just commercials or whatever, just boop, you can watch a different thing. That's probably not great. I think that there's, there is like an entertaining yourself to death thing. If, if you can't slow down long enough to have a thought, then you kind of have to wonder, like, what are you want, running from? You know, what are you hiding from a little bit? And yet, I do think in Christianity, people think that it's supposed to be not fun. I think people have this idea that if they're going to do something that God wants, it's supposed to be like, um, like health food. Like, food that is healthy can't taste good, right? I don't know if you know that. Uh, I feel that way. Medicine that is, like, really supposed to work is supposed to sting. Like, you're not supposed to have stuff that's both healthy and delicious. And yet, when you come to the church, I think people start to think that way. They have this idea that if you're going to do something that God calls you to do, it's supposed to be miserable. It's supposed to be Monty Python and the monks walking through the mud, slapping themselves in the face with the wood. It's not supposed to be joyful. It's supposed to be dour because you're a sinner and you're paying your sin off to God. You're going to be in God's presence. Well, he doesn't like you, so you've got to at least act like, he, you know, like you know that you've done something wrong. You're the dog that has eaten the pillow and the stuffing's everywhere. And you say, what did you do? And 10 seconds ago, the dog had no shame whatsoever. But you say, what did you do? And then, oh, you know, the dog can't even, can't even look at himself. He can't look at you. You know, like they, they feel that shame. They put that on. Well, I think you and I, because we sinful, we're sinful people, we break God's law often. And we feel guilt for that sin. We have this idea that anytime we're around God, it's supposed to be not fun. It's supposed to be painful in some way. We're having to pay for something that we did that we shouldn't have done. And with evangelism, it's even more that way because it's always going to be hard. It's always going to be difficult. It's always going to be not fun. But when I read Jesus talk about evangelism, it's different. It's evangelism with joy. When I remember the gospel, the gospel says that God may discipline me but he never has to punish me because he has punished Christ on the cross. Do you see the difference between punishment and discipline? Punishment is jail. You have to go and pay your debt to society. Discipline is 
teaching a child through, you know, I don't know, like grounding them or taking some treat away, that what they're doing is a bad thing that needs to stop. But those are two totally different things. Punishment for your sin, you can only pay for with your life. That's the only way. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. So we celebrate the gospel, which says that Jesus died on our behalf. He had to be punished so that we can be forgiven. But now that we are forgiven, we stand before God and we're loved by him. Therefore, those are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. But we don't act that way towards him. A lot of times we act like a spouse who's cheated. And maybe you're still allowed inside the house, but you know that nobody wants you there. And so you just kind of have to be the dog that's in shame all the time. That's not how God treats us. If you're in Christ, you're forgiven in Christ. And so you're invited into his mission, into his life that he's giving you through Christ. And so evangelism, it, it's going to be joyful. How? Let's look. It says in Philippians 3 that Paul said, whatever I gained, uh, whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count, this is guys only doing evangelism all day, every day, and this is his perspective. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. This is a guy saying, I don't care about anything else other than him. This is Philippians where he says constantly again and again and again and again, rejoice. Whatever else happens, rejoice because you have him. In Acts chapter 5, we've been thinking a lot about Acts because it's this interesting kind of one-two of Jesus sending the apostles out during his ministry and then after his death, burial, and resurrection, him, before his ascension, sending them again, sending them to go to everybody. Great commission sending, Acts 1-8 sending, sending them to all the nations. And then Jesus goes up, Holy Spirit comes down. They're empowered to go and to speak. And in Acts 5, it says that once when this is one of the first times where the apostles are like taken in and they're beaten. They're ashamed and they're beaten by the, the religious leadership in Jerusalem. And this is how they reacted. They called in the apostles. They beat them and charged them not to do evangelism anymore, not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. Then the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, publicly and one-on-one, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I want that joy. They were joyful because they were dishonored, kind of, because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I, I want you to tap into this. I want you to feel it. I want us as a people, one of our, our core values here at Hope Church is joy. I don't know if you know that or not. You go to the website, we've got core values. And one of them is joy. We, we're convinced that God is a good God and that serving Him is a joyful pursuit. These guys feel joy, but why? It's not nonsensical. There's a connection that they see. There is a logical progression that they see that if we can follow means that if we will evangelize, even evangelize with persecution, even evangelize with dishonoring, we will do so with 
joy. You're learning. I really don't want you to respond. Just let me talk. Those pauses are always dramatic. Good job. I thought you were going to jump in there. I hope you knew what I was about to say, but I don't need you to say it. I'll say it. Joy. How do we get there? Well, Matthew chapter 10. I want joy. Let's see it. It says in verse 16, Behold, this is Jesus sending the twelve. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Do you find the joy yet? (laughs) It sounds bad. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who will speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The first thing Jesus gives us for joy in this evangelism is to remember. That's what he's doing. He's telling them a couple of directives. There are things that they need to do. But most of what he's telling them are indicatives. They're, they're, they're things that are true that they just need to remember. What are the things they need to remember? They need to remember that they have a new identity in Christ. He called them sheep. They're not wolves any longer. They're sheep. They're sheep going out in the midst of wolves, but they're not wolves any longer. They're now sheep. Those that have been followers of Jesus, those that have been made his, have a new identity. They're, they're made different now. They act different. Yeah, we're going to have different actions, but I'm saying that your, your heart has the seed of something new that is going to colonize everything else in that heart. And it's a slow process, and we don't know where everybody starts. So it's really hard to make this judgment by just looking at people's lives. You're going to see really lousy Christians and really impressive pagans. But when you have become His, you have a new identity. You have a new core self. We call it being born again. And he begins by talking that way. He's talking about us in a new way. That's a reason to rejoice, even as he gives us this advice that we shouldn't be, uh, we need to be both innocent as as doves, but also wise as serpents. I don't know if you think about that. I don't know that you have a lot of experience with either doves or serpents. If you do with serpents, don't tell me. I don't want to know that you're like a weird, like snake pet person. People have them. I get that it's out there. I get that I don't get it. I don't love you any less, but I also don't need to know about it. But if you don't know about serpents, biblically is what we're getting at. Not necessarily any snake anywhere, but biblically is what we're getting at. I can't imagine snakes in the wild are clever, but the snake in the garden was. The Lord said that they were the cleverest of all the animals, that the enemy used, he spoke through the devil, or was the the devil spoke through a serpent, or was a serpent, you know, I don't know the math on how it worked. I just know that the enemy spoke through a serpent and that he, being crafty, tempted the lady and tempted the Adam, our first father and mother, and they fell. Ew. Clever, but actually pretty wicked. 
So what is cleverness? I want to be clever. Cleverness just means the ability to understand how what you do or what happens around you is going to produce something that happens next. Cleverness has the, the ability to look out at other people and guess what they might do. Cleverness understands and can guess at implications. That's a good thing. Wickedness uses cleverness to accomplish wicked deeds, and clever people can be wicked, just just have the capacity to allow that wickedness to shine. They use that cleverness. That's not a good thing. But cleverness is a good thing. And then you look at doves. Doves are considered innocent. They're considered pure. You think about white doves. But doves are also kind of dumb. Apparently, doves are really easy to snare. I didn't know that. I've never tried to catch one. But uh, if you do try to catch doves, it's not that bad. Maybe that's why they release them at weddings and stuff. They're just the easiest bird to catch. <laughs> They're not that hard to catch, but they are pure. But do you see what God is telling us to be in the gospel? He's telling us to be wise and innocent, to be like a wise dove or an innocent serpent. We're going to need to be. This is a world that's against us. Yet yeah, we have this new identity. We have to remember that we have this new identity. We have to remember that we're called by Jesus. Just take a second to think about the in- insanity that Jesus has included us on this mission. That he walked into your life and is calling you to be a part of what he's doing. It, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it happens a lot in really great movies and films and, and stories. There's the idea of a call to adventure. It's the idea that the customer, the, the, whatever the hero is, has this very normal life. Everything just sort of blah. And all of a sudden, some weird thing happens. Some opportunity takes place. Some, some mysterious personages begins to speak. And that person has the opportunity right then to jump into a wild and different world. You think about the Matrix. Morpheus is saying you can take the red pill or the blue pill. Very dated reference. I'm realizing that's like 25 years ago. But maybe you know what I'm talking about. There's also Men in Black. Did you ever see that movie with Will Smith? He's just a cop in New York, you know, walking around, being a cool guy. No, he's not. Now he has the opportunity by meeting Tommy Lee Jones to possibly be part of a world-saving alien fighter. Harry Potter is just this little orphan kid with uncle and aunt that don't like him and a cousin that beats him up until all of a sudden, boom, Hagrid comes in and says, you're a wizard, Harry. What is that moment? It's the call to adventure. It's the idea that you're not what you thought you were. You're something greater, but you're also going to be brought into a world that is both wilder and more wonderful, both more dangerous and more exciting. Jesus stands by Matthew at his tax booth and says, come and follow me. Jesus walks by the water while some dudes are just fishing. That's their job. They're just blue collar. They're just fishermen. And he says, come, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they drop their nets and they walk behind the Son of God as he calls them to take the words of life to all the world. He invites them into a world that has demons, that has governors that are going to beat them and say that they're doing it for God's sake, but also a world that has the Holy Spirit, that has them speak with tongues of fire. You are called. That's a big deal. (laughs) Remember. Remember that you're empowered. He describes here the fact that God doesn't just send you. He sends you with the Holy Spirit. He sends you with himself. 
says that when you're dragged before the leaders, so you don't have an excuse for lazy evangelism here. I'll talk about that in a second. But when you're dragged before leaders, he's going to speak through you. Don't prep. Now, I don't know how practical this advice is. History says that it's very practical. Many of our brothers and sisters have been called before governors and leaders and had to speak. And the Holy Spirit in that time spoke through them. And I pray that they were wise enough not to prep and just rely. But understand the implication of what that's saying. It is saying that the Holy Spirit is with you to give you words to speak. Just like he gave Peter words to speak. Just like he gave all the apostles and the disciples words to speak that actually went across all barriers of language. Just like he gave Paul words to speak in town after town after town as he preached. There's this very specific thing where he says, listen, if you're about to be pulled before leaders, don't worry about it. Don't prep. Just let the Holy Spirit speak through you. That, of course, is not an excuse for evangelism that's just lazy that you don't prep for in other places. I'm not allowed to say that the Holy Spirit is just going to speak through me, so I'm just going to stand up here and talk. It may not seem like it, but this takes a lot of effort and homework to build these sermons. You and I should be reading constantly, trying to understand, reading people, reading books, reading the world, trying to understand, what is this place? How does the gospel meet the need of this place? And how do I speak that in a way that's clear and understandable to the people that I'm speaking to? You're empowered. You're accompanied. (laughs) the fact that he's with you doesn't just mean that he can give you new skills. It also means that he's with you. You are not alone. The power of God himself is with you. As you go, you are not alone. He's implying that by talking about the Holy Spirit that will be with you. But he says that over and over again through Matthew and the rest of the New Testament. God is with you. When the Holy Spirit is with you, it doesn't just mean that he's... um, The Holy Spirit is not just an essence. It's not just a form. It's not just this sort of kind of cloudy presence. The Holy Spirit is a person, the third part of the Trinity. For the Holy Spirit to be with you, Ephesians says, is like a a down payment that God is jealous for the Spirit that He's put inside you. He has given you a guarantee. If He's given you the Spirit, well, of course He's going to bring you to Himself. It's the Spirit. It means that God Himself is with you. It means that you are not alone. You're accompanied. And you have a new family. It says here that brothers and fathers and children are going to hand you over to persecution. But it also says that God gives you a new family in his family. That's how Jesus is talking to these guys. He's not talking to them as an advisor. He's not talking to them as a guru. He's talking to them as a father to children. He says that. When he says to people in the last series, we talked about this in the last two chapters of Matthew, where he says, take heart, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. It's not colloquialism. He's not British. Hello, my son. No, he actually is saying, this is my relationship to you. You are now part of this family. You are now part of this family. Enjoy. 
Peter and James had thousands added every day. Matthew had, or, uh, Paul had Timothy and hundreds of other guys and ladies that we see throughout the New Testament. And you and I have each other. And thousands and millions of other congregations around the world that you probably won't meet till heaven, but they're there. And they're your brothers and they're your sisters and you get to enjoy them. I get to enjoy you. You get to enjoy me. Nobody leaves lands or father or sisters and doesn't receive a thousand times more in this life and in the next life, eternal life. It takes humility to turn around and see other people and care, <laughs> but they're there. And he's given you a new master, a new teacher. You had an old master. You had an old teacher. The Bible's clear about this. None of us are really independent. And I think you know that. Look at pictures of you in high school. Did you pick that outfit? Or was that just cool at the time? Nobody grows up in a vacuum. We all have a teacher. And the Bible is clear that our old teacher was one that wanted to hurt us and to kill us. But you have a new teacher now. One who has come to give life. One who is the banquet preparer. One who is the pleasure giver. One who is the captain and father and provider and master and teacher. The light and the wisdom. The one who is God. It says in John 1, nobody's ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. But Jesus has made him known. He's saying that Moses on the mountain, Elijah before the whirlwind, they have not seen God, but we have in Christ. They've seen God. They've understood things about him. They've, they've learned a lot. They've been able to speak. They're these great and powerful people. They, Moses and Elijah show up at the transfiguration. I'm not downplaying them. I am upplaying how important it is that Jesus is God. He's made him revealed to us. You now have this teacher. You are not alone. There's so many good things to remember, but we'd be foolish to look past the promises of pain that are here too. He doesn't just say good things. He's saying actually a lot of bad things here, and he continues to. It says in verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is, not, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. They've called the master of the house demon. Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? He's saying that we're going to be rejected in a, in a pretty rough way. Do you know what it feels like to be rejected? There's like cool kid table that you don't get invited to rejected. But I'm saying, do you know what it's like to have a relationship with somebody? To feel love. And then have that love end. We see that in a whole lot of places in our world. But what he's promising for us is, is that we'll feel that now because of him. I don't know what that placeholder is in your head for being rejected by somebody. But I want you to think, try to think about being rejected by somebody that's like in authority that you love. I remember... One of my first things I did as like a pastor, I wasn't really a pastor yet, but spirit um, ministry leader, it was my job to do the baby dedication for this campus of a giant church. And so, okay, I'm going to do the baby dedication, but I can kind of do it how I want to, so I'm going to do it how I want to. And I'm like, I don't know, 
23. So in my head, baby dedication is not a big deal. It's really a parent dedication. That the, what we're really doing is just committing everybody to what God has called them to do. And so I just got rid of a lot of the like fluff around it and did a, just a straightforward, like real baby dedication. <laughs> and I remember this lady at the church, and I really love, I still do. I don't think she was necessarily, well, who knows right or wrong. The point is, I did what I did, and I went up to her afterward, and she was smiling, but she had tears. She said, that wasn't a baby dedication. Now, again, you know, we could make fun of her for her ideas or whatever. Make fun of me <laughs> for being real intense and thinking I know everything at 23. But the point is what it feels like to be rejected by somebody that you don't want to be rejected by. Somebody who says to you, demon, defiler. It's a big deal. He's saying here that you're going to be rejected by people you love, that you may be a child rejected by your parent, that you may be a parent rejected by your child, that you may be a brother rejected by your brother, rejected in a way, too, that says evil. Not, hey, I have a disagreement about this. I'd rather us talk about it less. Demon. What do you do? What do you do with this kind of rejection? Well, I think you look around at the people that are still there. Jesus is saying you're going to be rejected, but you're going to be rejected for his sake. Meaning that when you're rejected, you're rejected with him. I'm not saying consolation prize, I'm saying you're still with him. Him who understands. Him who beat his breast and wept over Jerusalem because these people just kill the prophets and reject those that are sent to him. Him who sat dejectedly when he gave the truth and the crowds disappear and the disciples are standing there and he goes, you going to leave too? Him who was called demon and son of Satan by these, these Pharisees, these ones that have spent how many years memorizing his words? He knows exactly what it is to be rejected in this way. He knows exactly what it is to weep for these people. And this Jesus says, keep going. He says it's worth it. He gives us this final set of promises, which, I don't know, can be kind of scary. He says, have no fear of them. That sounds good. Yeah. I don't know how. I love them. So it's a fear of rejection. I don't know how to not fear them. But he says, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. He's saying that every little thing that you do, every little attempt, every tear that you shed, every rejection they give is known. It's seen by your Father in heaven. It's not not noticed. It's noticed. He cares. I think about that. I think about that a lot with uh, invitation cards. We give invitation cards for Hope Church. They're little pocket cards. You ever have those and then they start to get just sort of warped and worn out by your wallet because you didn't give them out? And then maybe you kind of had this great interaction with somebody and you're feeling a lot of conviction that maybe you should give them one, so you gave them one and it felt kind of weird because it was a little bent up or whatever, but 
hey, listen, I, I really hope that maybe you would consider reading this. It, it's an invitation to my church I love, and, and maybe you could come sometime. And you do it, you know, ha, 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 you did it. And you walk away from that moment feeling both of those things, feeling, I did it, I finally did it. I finally shared the gospel with somebody, kind of. But also feeling like, what was that pathetic attempt? Who, who would show up because I gave them a bent-up card? And you just get trashed by the enemy, like, this was just useless. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. The Lord spoke through that. It's his word. It's not going to return void. And he saw it. He saw it, and he knew you did it just because you love him, (laughs) just because you knew you were supposed to do it. He saw it, and it's going to get shouted from a housetop someday. It's not nothing. This church feels like nothing sometimes. I I, I do the math on how many people are in this valley and how many people are here on a Sunday, and we are... We're just like a whisper in the city. No, we're not. No, we're not. We are God's light and salt to the city. And he sees and he knows. No, we're not. He keeps going. He says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. (laughs) So this is one where you're like really ready for something encouraging. Listen, don't fear people who can only kill your body. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's not very encouraging, (laughs) but it's actually the medicine that we need. Because the first thing he's saying here is that he sees you. And in verse 27, that's very loving. But in verse 28, it's terrifying because he sees you. The Lord of all glory, the Holy One of Israel sees you. And there's a part of you that wants to make him small and make people big. And we call that all kinds of things in our culture, codependency, social anxiety, low self-esteem because you're not getting what you need from other people, identity confusion, yada, 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 yada. Fear of man is what the Bible calls it. And what it means by that is that you look around and you see other people and you make their opinion what matters and you let God's opinion go by the wayside. What this verse does is has the Holy One step back in and say, don't fear them, fear me. Initially, that causes panic, but it's a panic you need to get your eyes off of all these things that are crushing you and looking up to the one who can give you life. Because as soon as he gives you this harsh thing, he then says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You're of more value than many sparrows. Your father who sees you. He, He knows all about the sparrows. He knows even more about you. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father is in heaven. Again, it gets really scary at the end. Why, though? Both because it's true and because he's connecting back how you can look at a God who is holy and feel comfort that he sees you. You can feel comfort that he sees you because if you declare Christ, you confess Christ as your Lord, Christ looks at you and says, that one's mine, Lord. You can't crush that one. You've already crushed me on that one's behalf. That one is forgiven. That one is with us 
forever. And the God who delights, he doesn't want anybody, he doesn't want anybody to be crushed. He wants everybody to come to a knowledge of the truth, it says in Peter. That God delights to say with Christ, yeah, wonderful, bring them in, let's do this forever. They're part of the house, they're part of the family, yes, woo. But you, you don't see that until you read all this in the, in the light of the gospel and see that his eyes are on you. His eyes, the Holy One's eyes are on you. His eyes, who has forgiven you in Christ, is on you. And if you can see that, if you can understand that, then you can understand why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, scary, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Let's get to work, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Put these things together, folks. Remember what is true. See what's scary, but then just remember this God. The one that you'll stand before one day in Christ. The one who can forgive you and love you so that you go and joy and persuade others. What we're going to do now is transition into a time of the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a place for us to visually and physically remember what Christ has done for us. The Lord's Supper is a way for us to remember the gospel and to say that we've taken the gospel in, that we believe it. However, let me ask you to be really careful about taking the Lord's Supper at Hope Church. We're open in communion. You don't have to be a member of Hope Church to take the Lord's Supper, but you do have to believe what Hope Church believes about salvation in order to take the Lord's Supper presented by Hope Church. To not do that is to cheapen it. We'd ask you not to do that. But instead, if you've placed all of your faith and all of your trust in Christ alone for salvation, then in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to take some time to to pray and examine yourself before the Lord. To let Him just sort of open your heart and have a serious conversation with Him. You've been distracting yourself all week. Stop right now and just speak to Him. And whatever he shows you, repent of it, trusting that that Christ loves you and he's paid for this on the cross, but repenting of it, turning from it. Take a moment. And then as the band's playing, come up. After you take that moment, come up, get the elements, sit down and hang on to them. We're going to take them all together. And while this is somber, this is also celebration. Remember what it says in Revelation about one day, what it'll be like to be with him. One of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. (laughs) Because of the blood of Christ, you're before the throne of God. And you serve him day and night in his temple. Better is one day in his house than a thousand elsewhere. And you serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Lord God and Heavenly Father, there's so much in your scripture that it's hard to say anything without trying to bring in a lot of stuff and making it seem sort of difficult. But 
what we can know for sure is that a holy God loves a sinful people. That Jesus died for our sin, for all that would put their faith in him, who would declare him in this world, so that one day he would declare them before the Father, before this judgment seat. May the people in this room agree together to believe, to trust, to be baptized, to be held in your hand, to be called, to be sent, to have a new identity, to be accompanied, to be empowered, to be yours, Father, to be useful now and to be yours forever.